Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Zoos and amusement park operators are upset with the governor about his slow pace on their reopening. It's one of the subjects we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I am here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, and Laura Johnston. Hello, hello. Good morning. Hello. Got lots of news to talk about today, so let's get right to it. Are Ohio lawmakers still planning to stop cities from banning single-use plastic shopping bags? This has become a more interesting debate because of the coronavirus pandemic. When this debate started, it was just about pollution. It was just about the waterways. But once the pandemic started and we all became germaphobes, you weren't allowed to bring uh, reusable bags into the grocery store. You had to use the bags that were there. Cuyahoga County has has indefinitely postponed enforcement of its ban that was supposed to have started in January and then July. But legislators don't want to see that. So, Jane Cahoon, what's the latest? Well, the latest is that that very issue that you brought up about the uh, supposedly germy reusable bags wasn't did, in fact, uh, come into the debate on the Senate floor. The Ohio Senate uh, Republican controlled passed along party lines this bill that would preempt local plastic bag bans, and it, it would put a, a one-year moratorium on it that would block local governments from, from banning plastic bags, as well as straws and disposable utensils, aluminum cans, glass bottles, styrofoam cups, and carryout containers. It's Look, this is interesting because of, the, I mean, when grocery stores were trying to say we're safe, they immediately went to the plastic bags. Although, Laura Johnston, I think there was also a study that we wrote about that said reusable bags actually do not pose that much of a threat. There wasn't a study per se, but Emily Bamforth talked to a bunch of experts and said, look, they're no worse than the clothes that you're wearing or, you know, touching um, a product and then putting it back on the shelf. So that it's something stores have done to make customers feel safer, but it's more of window dressing than maybe real. Um, I want to point out Aldi still lets you bring your own bags. So, All right, but, but let me push back on that a little bit because there was the study that showed where hospital people were taking off their dressing gowns mm-hmm. that that the virus would be found in the air, that the just the rustling of their clothing could take whatever they had on them and put it back into the air. The, the debate was, is it just fragments that you can't get the virus from or was it the full virus? But, but it was a, a factor. So if I'm bringing in my cloth or vinyl reusable bags and there is coronavirus on it because somebody in my house is infected and I don't know, and I'm, I'm in line and I go up and I'm rustling my bags as they get filled with the groceries, isn't there a danger to the people around me and to the cashiers that I might be infecting them? I think it's the same danger that you have with your purse that you bring into the grocery store or your sweatshirt. I mean, anything you bring in, 
could have something on it, correct? I mean, I agree that baggers shouldn't be responsible for bagging your groceries, but and maybe they could give you wipes. But this, I think, is a distraction from the actual debate about whether cities have the right to tell you you can't use plastic bags anymore. And maybe this is an excuse that the Republicans look and say, look, we're on the right. We shouldn't we shouldn't allow these kind of bans. Okay, everybody, this is Laura Johnston who runs Rock the Lake and is a diehard protect the lake person. So when she calls the Republicans a distraction, she might have somewhat of a bias. I'm saying they might be using this as a distraction. Or they're worried about Ohioans getting infected with the coronavirus and are putting the brakes on this debate for a year. They were doing this before they were ever heard of the coronavirus. (laughs) They were. And and Laura's right that this problem with plastic pollution is just, it's staggering. It's horrible. All right. I sound like a Republican apologist (laughs) here, but, but look, we all don't want to get this virus. And if the Republicans in the legislature said, legislature say, look, We don't know enough about this because we keep learning more about this virus every day. Let's wait a year to have this debate again until we know more. Is there really anything wrong with that, given the state we're in? But that is a separate issue. And they were trying to do this before the coronavirus. And even the county said, "Okay, yeah, we're going to put this off indefinitely because of the safety concerns. That's fine. What I think the legislature is doing and, and was trying to do way before the coronavirus is saying, home rule doesn't exist in this case. Like you can't legislate this in your own town. And I think that's the same thing that's happened with gun rights and uh, local restrictions for who can work on projects. I mean, it's happened over and over and over again in this. Let me frame it this way though. This was uh, a divisive debate. There were a lot of people. There were a lot of people like Laura and Jane who were arguing, save the whales And then there were a lot of people that were arguing, I like my plastic bags. I use them to pick up my dog droppings and all the other things. It wasn't like this was an overwhelming uh, support uh, on either side. The the pandemic does does add, I guess I should say, the pandemic might sway some of the people that were in favor of the ban against the ban. It's and because this was fairly divided. Could the weight of public opinion shift now to, I want to use plastic bags that pollute the water and destroy the neighborhood and make trees ugly? It's and possible. It, I want to know what other states they're doing that were way, way ahead of us in this plastic bag ban. That's a good idea. We should do that story, Laura Johnson. Why don't we assign somebody <laughs> to check with New Jersey and some of these places California. that California. Yeah, you did. Okay, so I also just add that, yes, this was the one year. I mean, I think it did sway some people like I think Matt Dolan said that's the reason he voted for it. But uh, the the House had like a permanent ban. So the bill actually has to go back to them for further consideration. So it's not a done deal yet. Right. And look, let's face it right now in, in Columbus, the Senate is where the wisdom is happening. If you could call it that the house is just doing wacko stuff. So it's, I, I'm much more interested in the Senate version because they're trying, it seems to be thoughtful. I mean, Matt Dolan has done a lot of interesting things of late. Um, the house, I mean, they just, you know, it's, it's wackadoodle time there. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why are the operators of zoos, museums, and amusement parks closed by the coronavirus saying about Governor Mike DeWine? 
in short, they are not very happy. This is a uh, this is Chris Warnowski. Susan Glaser had a story yesterday where she spoke with uh, Julie Calvert, who is the president of the Cincinnati USA Convention and Visitors Bureau. Um, who basically said that the entire industry is pretty upset that museums and places like uh, Cedar Point or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the zoo have have no real guidance from the state yet on when and how they're going to be allowed to reopen. So um, one of her biggest concerns was that Indiana and Kentucky have both planned their reopening for these kind of tourist attractions. And there's some concern that people from our state will cross state lines and spend their money elsewhere. And, um, you know, I, I mean, look, even like an illegitimate even, concern, it's, it is, it, it's a, it is a legitimate concern. And, and, you know, I think, you know, if you look at historically in, in the months that we've sort of been dealing with this, we have been overly cautious in, in a lot of respects and, and for good reason. I mean, I, you know, overly cautious makes it sound like I'm I was going to say, I'm surprised to hear other words, overly cautious. No, but I mean, it, you know, in, in a that good was Laura way. Johnson. Yeah. Okay. All right. So since Susan's story published, a huge development has occurred in amusement park land. Disney World announced it will open its Florida parks in July. Not the the water parks, not the two Typhoon Lagoon and whatever the other one is. But yeah, of course you would know that, Laura Johnson. So <laughs> so they've and if you read what they're doing, they've put in a whole raft of things. I mean, those places are enormous. I lived down there for nine years. They're huge parks with many restaurants and lots of different attractions and lines. And they have laid out a, a massive number of things they're going to do to open it. If if Disney World and Florida and the Orange County Board of whatever approved their opening yesterday, if they can do it, really, why can't Ohio and Cedar Point come up with some guidelines? So this is Laura Johnston. So I think this is fascinating because I went to Disney in February and I'm so glad, you know, lucked out that we did this before the coronavirus because they're canceling character visits, which is a huge reason that kids with, you know, little kids want to go to the parks. They're limiting capacity. They're going to do reservations for everything. Um, there's going to be social, socially distanced. I mean, so your kid can't hug Mickey Mouse, right? That's gone. So it, it takes away some of the magic of Disney and it, it's changing the parks. Now, Cedar Point is different than Disney in that it's more about thrill rides. Right. And it, and it's much smaller, you know, it's not anywhere near the size of Disney. Disney is, they're kind of known for their customer service. Like they, you know, the corporate side of their company actually trains other companies, how to do things. That's like a big part of their business. And so Disney Institute, right. So they're kind of a standard bearer for a lot of things when it comes to how their parks are run. And, and, and so, you know, they have deep pockets and they have resources and, you know, and they have the ability to sort of do these things in a way that, that a lot of other, you know, like smaller organizations, you know, say like the rock and roll hall of fame or, you know, smaller museums might not have that kind of resource or understanding. So, you but know, now, but with, now, Chris, you have the precedent. They right. have put out there. Here's how we're going to do it. The the we're the cream de la creme, the best practice place for for tourism. I mean, the parks are like spotless because every employee who works there has to pick up gum wrappers and things. And they have like underground like trash. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. So so now that we have that, you would think that would hasten it for everybody else. Well, okay. Here, 
the thing with our, first of all, this is a large group. Zoos, museums, and amusement parks are very different animals, um, pun not intended. The Rock Hall and the Art Museum have already introduced opening dates, even though we haven't gotten guidance from the state, which is kind of fascinating. And then there's a big difference between Cedar Point and Kings Island, and then the small mom and pop fun centers. I interviewed the owner of Swings and Things um, last week when mini golf was opening, and they off- they also have bumper boats and, you know, tracks for the go-karts and they're not allowed to open at all. And they're trying to make this case that we're small and family run and we don't, you don't have to worry about the lines here that you do at Cedar Point. So this is just a very wide ranging group of things that are looking for opening dates. You know, people are kind of desperate for things to do. And so if Cedar Point were to open and be able to prove that it's safe, you know, much the way Destination Cleveland is trying to prove that downtown restaurants are safe. Uh, people might go. And so there is a little bit of urgency here. Summer, you know, Memorial Day was last weekend and and people are ready for the summer. It'll be interesting to see if Mike DeWine responds to this extra pressure. Uh, he does have a briefing uh, today, so maybe it'll come up then. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How big will this year's algal boom be in Lake Erie? Everybody remembers 2014 when Toledo could not drink its water because the bloom overtook its water inlets. We haven't had that happen since 2014, but we've had some big bloom years. Laura Johnston, you're the the queen of Lake Erie. What can we expect? So this is looking like not a bad year for the harmful algal bloom. They're looking at a three to five on a scale of one through 10. So last year in comparison was a 7.3. And this will be closer to 2018, they believe. The reason for the less severe prediction is primarily because of a fairly dry spring in the Maumee River watershed. The, although although May hasn't been dry. No, but we're talking about from the beginning of March to the beginning of July is what they call the loading season. So that's what's bringing all the phosphorus into the lake. So there are a ton of programs that have been happening for a couple of years now to try to reduce phosphorus. Remember, we're trying to get it down 40% below 2008 levels. There's no way to know if those are working yet, but the measurements are showing we have less phosphorus flowing in they think it's because they've had less hard rain events because the really bad ones for the lake are those massive storms that just come down really fast and just take all the topsoil and all the phosphorus and all the manure off the fields and into the water. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever gone back and looked at their early forecast and compared it to what we had? Is there any record of accuracy to this thing? Yeah, I do it the last couple of years. And last year they predicted a 7.5 and we were a 7.3. So they were pretty right on. Wow. And they'll, they'll give weekly forecast updates through the final one is July 9th. And that's what they'll stick with for the rest of the season. Wow, that's pretty accurate. Okay, good to know. It's this week in the CLE. When sports start being played again in America, will people in Ohio be able to bet on them? This is an old story. We were talking about this. It feels like more than a year ago, competing bills in the state house and Senate to allow sports betting in Ohio. Jane, it looks like we finally have a development. Jane Cahoon? Yes, you are correct. It has been more than a year since this has been talked about. And we finally saw some action this week. A a House bill came out of a committee, and it's headed to the House floor. Um, And that bill would would put the betting under the jurisdiction of the Ohio Lottery. And it would tax betting receipts at 10% and send the net proceeds to education and gambling addiction programs. However, there's still a big disagreement over who should regulate this. 
And there's this competing bill, as you mentioned, in the Senate, uh, which hasn't been approved, that would put this under the Ohio Casino Control Commission. So the Senate president, Larry Obhoff, said, yes, they'll consider the House bill if it comes to them. But both sides still seem to be digging in their heels on this. So I just don't know when this is ever going to be passed. You know, they, they both sides came in and presented their case to the editorial board. And I, I can't remember all the reasons why now, but I remember the that our consensus was pretty strong that the Casino Control Commission made a whole lot more sense than the Lottery Commission. It's already geared up for that kind of gambling. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how that reconciles. Uh, the governor has a feeling on this too, right, Jane? The, the governor seems to prefer the Casino Control Commission, although I have to say he's generally not an enthusiastic supporter of, you know, gambling expansions. So I think he's kind of holding his nose, but that's the version he prefers. And I think, you know, I don't know, the putting it under the lottery, I guess, could give some small businesses like bars and restaurants and fraternal organizations maybe more opportunities to to have sports betting terminals. But anyway, as I said, anybody guess here? Nobody expects this to generate a huge amount of revenue, though, right? No, um, the Senate version, as I said, the the House version would tax it at 10 percent. The Senate version, it would be a 6.25 percent tax with proceeds going to the state's general fund. But neither one of those would would raise a heck of a lot of money for the state. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. What's the latest with lawsuits against the Cuyahoga County Jail over its record a few years back of inmates dying in bigger numbers than ever before? We had some movement on a couple of stories this week, Chris Warnowski. Yeah. So just a little background on this uh, in case people hadn't been paying attention to this for a while. Um, Between 2018 and 2019, nine people died in the Cuyahoga County Jail from drug overdoses or suicides. And thanks in part to a lot of our reporting on the issue, the U.S. Marshals came in and did a very thorough investigation that uncovered a lot of problems within the jail, including the fact that it was crowded, that inmates, including pregnant women, were sleeping on the floors, that inmates were being served rotten food, and they were being forced to sort of live on lockdown for most of the day, like 23 hours a day because of staff shortages. And it was it was a mess. And um, the warden, the jail director and a bunch of other folks lost their jobs. Uh, some were charged with crimes and a bunch of lawsuits sort of started to get filed after that. The the latest it was filed this week and, and uh, we wrote about yesterday, Adam Freese had a story about yesterday comes from the son of one of those nine inmates who passed away. Joseph Arquillo Jr. filed a lawsuit on behalf of his father against the county and former jail employees, including an officer who faces criminal charges that accuse him of ignoring Joseph Arquillo Sr. as he died, like basically like hunched over on the floor on a mat in the jail. And Arquillo was booked in the jail on probation violations, uh, and he had heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, and Valium in his system when he died. And he was in the jail for about nine hours. And his cell was so populated that he he was forced to sleep on the ground. And he met with medical personal, personnel in the jail after he complained about feeling sick. And he was returned to his mat in like 15 minutes. Wow. And, and he was slumped over in kind of an unnatural position and didn't move for two hours. We had surveillance video of it that we looked at. 
and, and we timed it and we saw it and nobody really checked on him. And Martin Devering, who is the former corrections officer who was charged in connection with this death, it was supposed to check on inmates every 15 minutes. And he walked by Arquillo's mat, kicked it and then walked away. And he was fired three months after the death and was charged with falsifying records and some other stuff uh, because he claimed that he had been checking on Arquillo and inmates during this whole time. So okay. you know, this, this is, I mean, again, we've had so many people have been charged at this point in this. And so this is just one in, in a, in a, in a, a collection of lawsuits related to civil rights issues and, and other problems within the and it'll likely result in a big settlement. All right, we'll have to keep track of it. Yep. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are the Soapbox Derby, Holden Arboretum, and Exo Steakhouse in downtown Cleveland being affected by the coronavirus? We keep coming up with more and more things that are postponed, canceled, and changed around. Laura Johnston, we had a whole series of them yesterday, actually including the Cleveland fireworks. So let's take them in order. Soapbox Derby. It's off. That draws 400 kids from across the country to Akron. It's a big deal there uh, at Derby Downs, and it is off for the year. Wow. When's the last time? Do we know when the last time, if ever, that was canceled? I don't know if it was ever canceled. I mean, it's been going on for decades and decades. Wow. Okay. Holden Arboretum. Uh, it is now open. It's been open to members, and now they're opening up to the general public just in time for their big rhododendron blooms. And that's something that you could actually do in safety. They're recommending yeah. or they're requiring people to wear masks while they're on the trails. But this isn't an indoor thing. You're outside and they're limiting access, right? Right. And just so you know, the botanical garden, though, is still closed. So this is just the Holden Arboretum. Exo Steakhouse. Yeah, it's done. It just couldn't withstand the pressure of the pandemic. And so they made an announcement. Uh, they've been around since 2003 in the warehouse district and, and went out of business this year. Yeah, it was a really heartfelt note that they put out. It's sad because they mm -hmm. clearly didn't want to go out of business, but they just couldn't withstand it. And then late yesterday, the Cleveland fireworks. Yes, those will be September 19th. <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> they will not. There's no way we're going to be out of this by September 19th. They just didn't want to tell people it's not happening. Okay, right now they're for September 19th. Sometime during the summer, we will have an update it's this week in the CLE. What's a surprise medical bill and why do lawmakers want to outlaw them? Jane Cahoon, this is one that you really have to explain because it's not the, <laughs> the most accessible topic we'll talk about on this podcast. So what is it and what's happening with them? You're counting on Dr. Cahoon to explain <laughs> this? <laughs> well, it's a, a surprise medical bill happens when, when somebody is treated at a hospital or, or other facility that it might be in their network, but for instance, they end up seeing a specialist who is not in their network and they end up getting a big bill for it that their insurance doesn't fully cover. They also call it balance billing because it forces patients to pay the, the balance of a bill that their insurance won't pay for. But uh, they're saying they were actually able to get providers and insurance companies to agree on a version of this bill in the House, House Bill 388. It passed the, the Ohio House last week and is on its way to the Senate. So this followed years of negotiation, you know, between state officials, insurance companies, hospitals, et cetera. And it's kind of a complicated solution, but, but basically it's going to require the insurance companies and the providers to work together to, to negotiate a deal when this happens that, 
you know, they're either going to pay the median amount that the insurer paid other providers in the area for, for a particular service, that, or they'll pay the rate that the insurer pays for an out-of-network service or the rate paid by Medicare. And then if they can't agree the thing, it'll go to arbitration. I guess that this is, for people that have never had one, this is fairly meaningless. But for the people who have dealt with this, this is a really big deal because it costs them lots of money. So, so, and there's a big segment of people. That's why they've been fighting about this for so long. So there's wide agreement though. Apparently uh, polls or surveys have shown that there's, there's widespread bipartisan support for, for a solution to this problem. Okay. This week on the CLE, what's going on with this wacky weather? We had snow in the second week of May and then we were near 90 two weeks later. Who wants to take that one on? (laughs) (laughs) this is laura johnson i feel like every spring we say we went straight from winter to summer but come on i mean literally two weeks ago it snowed it was like 35 degrees when my kid had a car parade for his you know his teachers were going through and we were wearing mitts and carrying hot chocolate and then it was near 90 and we're like sweating um just doing nothing so well and you had mentioned yesterday we still have our winter bodies so 88 feels like 108 whereas in (laughs) august if you get to 88 it's you know i need a sweater Um, it's just it it was it's been odd jane cahoon rich exner did some looking at this what was his general take on what's going on with our weather yeah he had a story that that had some some fun stats that pointed out that the, the last snow of the season, well, hopefully the last snow of the season, <laughs> was on May 11th when, when the high was also like 45 degrees, which was 23 degrees below normal. And then on May 8th, I think it was only 47, and that was 20 degrees be- below normal. And then this week, we had these temperatures that approached 90 that were well above normal. So it was just a weird, you know, much of May being below normal, but now, you know, it's the, it's the straight from winter to summer in Cleveland. But that is the reason that you really are not supposed to put out your annuals much before May 28th, because there is always this possibility that you'll get serious, serious cold and frost. So, okay, well, we're fully into summer. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, this is Chris Warnowski, that maybe this extreme weather on both sides of the spectrum is a sign that the weather gods want us to stay home and not spread the corona. Okay, <laughs> right. that's, that's good. We'll end it there. It's this week in the CLE. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This week in the CLE will return tomorrow. Tomorrow.